This series of California-based podcasts is brought to you in partnership with the Serica Initiative, our nonprofit program. The mission of the Serica Initiative is to produce independent educational and public awareness programming to make the U.S. and global public better informed about China. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to the original writing on our website. Sign up for SubChina access, and you get all that and much more. With stories on everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, something we will be discussing in detail today, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates, over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and today I am at Stanford University, fourth stop on this south-north Seneca tour of the Golden State. One of the most troubling, and for many people, I hope one of the most appalling consequences of the onset of this new phase of Sino-American competition that we are now in, has been the rise of American Sinophobia. We've seen this in some of the alarmist, if not fully paranoid, rhetoric coming out of the American political leadership、uh, from the president on down. We've seen it in moves to restrict visas to Chinese who are seeking to enter the U.S., whether for study or attending a conference for business or even just for tourism, and we have seen it in the targeting, many would argue, in the profiling of Chinese or Chinese American researchers in the United States. This is something that SubChina, as an organization, has taken very seriously. If I may, I'd like to draw your attention, in particular, to one of the important features、uh, of our. SubChina Signal series. It's our Sinophobia tracker.、Uh, there you can read and find extensive links to reports about、uh, the very troubling things that have been said and the numerous incidents that are of grave concern to us. So whether this has been mirrored by a similar rise in anti-Americanism in China is well, it's a question certainly worth asking, and I'm sure that there's plenty of evidence, certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence that、uh, this is also happening. But that's beyond the scope of what we're looking at today. Today we're talking about. Rising xenophobia in the U.S. with a particular focus on what's happening here in California, which is home, of course, to the largest number of ethnically Chinese people in the U.S., as well as some of our finest universities and our most cutting-edge tech companies. We could not have found a better person to talk about this trend with, someone who can put it into its historical context, but who also sees it from up close. Professor Gordon H. Chang, no. Not Gordon G. Chang,、uh, the man who predicted and continues to cherish hopes for China's imminent collapse, but the good Gordon Chang, the sobriquet which,、uh, with which many of my friends and acquaintances refer to today's guest, to distinguish him from the other, the bad Gordon Chang. The good Gordon Chang is professor of American history here at Stanford, and is Olive H. Palmer, professor in humanities, as well as senior associate vice provost for undergraduate education. Gordon, welcome to Seneca, and thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me to be here. Uh, Gordon, uh, you are an American historian, and I think that this current bout of American xenophobia needs to be placed in an historical context.、Uh, I think probably most of our listeners are pretty familiar with some of those dark episodes of American history when xenophobia has reared its head before,、uh, but perhaps you could maybe offer a, a highlight reel of some of the events we ought to keep in mind as we observe what's unfolding now. 
Well, I'd be happy to talk about that because I think the current situation needs to be placed in a historical context, as we like to say, uh, which also helps to appreciate what's unique, but also what is continuous in American history in the current moment. So what I mean by that is that we're in a very emotional, intense, and fraught moment where there has been a rapid rise in the in sinophobia, as you as you use the term, which I think is very apt. But if we look through uh, the long history of U.S.-China relations and the history of Chinese in the United States, sinophobia or periods of intense sinophobia punctuate this history from just about the beginning of when Chinese arrive in the country back in the in some numbers in the 1850s. Uh, and uh, while uh, some quarters in American society welcome Chinese. Many saw the arrival of Chinese in America as threats already in the 1850s, throughout the mid-19th century, and certainly after the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. I've just written a, completed a book and published a book on right. railroad workers. And the backlash against them, um, well, crested in the late 1870s and 1880s, uh, highlighted by the passage of the Chinese, first Chinese Exclusion Act, or the Chinese Restriction Act, which uh, dramatically reduced the number of Chinese who could come into the country and was the first basically ethnic-based uh, restriction on um, immigration into the United States. Now, if you look at the, the arguments for that bill, for that legislation, it, it sounds in many ways very similar to today. Hmm. The Chinese are, are, are hordes. They're threatening American life. They uh, can't be trusted because they have ethnic allegiances. Uh, Chinese are coming into the country, this is in the 1870s, 1880s, with um, a, an ethnic conspiracy. Uh, you'd see these tracks, these novels, short stories, political speeches, as, uh, 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 accusing Chinese of having a uh, conspiracy of taking over America, taking over the country. Um, not just uh, dominating labor markets, but having political aspirations to take, steal what's valuable in America. So that was that was one high point of the uh, sinophobia. Uh, but then throughout the uh, subsequent decades, you'd have this uh, similar kind of, of uh, uh, attitude. I use a, a, a tract in my class um, written by Samuel Gompers, mm -hmm. uh, the famous labor leader. I don't sure. know if you ever have seen this, but it's worthwhile taking a look at as an example of early sinophobia, published around 1906. This was published is called uh, Meat versus Rice, American Manhood versus Asiatic Cooliism, Which Shall Survive? Hmm. I mean, really incendiary title, as you can see, but it captured that sign of sense that it was a clash of civilizations, clashes of people, and that the outcome of which was not clear. Um, and this tract was uh, advocated continuation and strengthening and expansion of the Exclusion Acts. Uh, and the characterization of Chinese and other Asians in this tract, again, uh, sort of prefigures what we see today. That is, there are hordes of people coming into the country. Uh, culturally, ethnically, medically, physically, they're unassimilable. Uh, but also that they have some type of uh, conspiracy, racial conspiracy, to undermine America itself. Right. Then we had Samuel Gompers. Now we've got Michael Pulsbury in the 100-Year Marathon. And you have that. And you had the same thing during the 1950s, after 1949, where the Chinese communists 
after the Chinese Communist Revolution and then Chinese in the United States becoming suspect of being agents of Beijing. Right. So what we have today is new in many respects because China is very, very different than it was in previous years. But in some ways, uh, this uh, characterization, this, this uh, Sinophobia, taps into deep uh, sources of uh, a racial sentiment that, that go back in American history. But, uh, Gordon, it's not just things that have happened to Chinese in America in the past that are instructive to us here, I think, uh, in this moment. Uh, but the way that our society has reacted when threats come from any particular country, region, religious group, um, this is clearly not the first time the United States has been confronted with a rising power that's challenged American primacy. Uh, and contrary to what State Department Director of Policy and Planning, Kyron Skinner, says, it's even not the first time that a non-Caucasian group has done so. I'm thinking primarily of Japan twice in the last century. Uh, there was, of course, uh, first militarily in the 1930s and then you know, all the way until 1945. And then again, economically, really, in the 1980s, uh, that really resulted in mistreatment of Japanese in the U.S., worse, of course, during the, the era of the internment camps in the 40s. But, of course, uh, in the 1980s, uh, really beginning in the late 70s, you started to see a lot of this anti-Japanese backlash as well. What is different, uh, in part, is that China, though, is a multidimensional threat. I mean, it's both a military threat, at least uh, to some people, and a, a, a technological and economic challenger, uh, as Japan may have been in the 1980s. So it feels like it's compounded. Uh, and of course, we're so much more intertwined than we ever were. Uh, there are more Chinese people present uh, here in the United States than there ever were Japanese present here. Uh, there are, I, I would still think, uh, lots of lessons to be learned from the, the Japanese experience. W what do you think? Uh, it's, there's an interesting um, dimension of what we might call the racialization of Asians in America, as Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, uh, others, of uh, Asian descent who live in the United States. And that dimension, which we can call it, a, a sort of a perpetual alienation, that, that, that Asians are perpetual foreigners. And that no matter how long we, and I include myself, I'm fourth generation California, however long we Asians are living in the United States, there's a sense that we're never really fully American. Whites are American, even if you're first or second generation, you're surely absorbed to be assumed to be, be, be um, uh, American. Uh, you can be African American and you can be black and you can be a first or second generation from Africa. And there's some more of an assumption, well, America is black or white. Asian doesn't quite fit. And Asians are, are, are seen as extensions of lands of ancestry. Uh, why this is so, we can talk about, but that, that's sort of the characterization. So that Chinese in America, uh, it's very difficult for many Americans to disassociate uh, Chinese Americans from uh, lands of ancestry. So this is what we're talking about, Sinophobia, that, that the fear of Chinese in America is directly linked to uh, 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 politics and perceptions of China. Um, through through the decades. Now, this is certainly true too, with Japanese, as you pointed out, during World War II, and this uh, 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 culminates in the in the terrible tragedy, the crime of internment of Japanese Americans, who were uh, uh, numerically uh, majority uh, American born, but uh, they get sent off to the incarceration camps because of their uh, uh, ancestry. 
And they are tainted with being foreign or inevitably foreign. As some of the politicians at the time said, you know, the more dangerous people in America among the Japanese population in the United States are not the parents, it's not the first generation, but it's the second generation because they speak English, they appear to be Americans, but inside they're really Japanese. They can still, they can blend with us. They can, yeah, they can, they can pass by being Americans because of their language, but uh, genes make them different. So clearly, China's rise, though, has impacted the way uh, that that Chinese are viewed in, in the United States, uh, whether they're ethnically Chinese, Chinese-Americans like you and me, or people who are PRC nationals who've come over or people from other parts of greater China. The rise of China has affected that. Uh, it may be that they are even more subject to this this perception that they're just an extension of, of the ancestral country. It may be less. I'm not really sure. Uh, what is your sense? I mean, I talking to friends of mine who are Chinese American, we're kind of torn. I mean, I, I certainly think this is as, as well. On the one hand, there's a, a kind of grudging respect sometimes for the, the, the country uh, that they associate with you, you with is is no longer the, this sort of you know backward, underdeveloped cesspool. It's now something maybe to be feared. So not sure whether being despised or being feared is the preferable case. But uh, it's a tall ask. But Gordon, how has China's rise challenged the way that the rest of American society broadly has come to view Chinese Americans? Let let me, again, I, I talk as a historian. I have a certain historical perspective on this. And the perception of China, the view of China by Americans varies between and see what you sort of suggested is well, there, there is a paternalistic view, one that sees China or has seen it in China as a poor, downtrodden country, almost despised, uh, weak, and uh, irredeemable in, in terms of being able to, to become part of a mo- mo- modern nations. And that was certainly true way up into the 20th century. And that paternalism meant that some people were sympathetic, they tried to do uplift for China, or others just simply despised, thought China was uh, unimportant. But then that is oddly connected to a flip side, and that is that China can also be menacing. Right. That, that because of the numbers, because of its hunger, because of its political passions, because of its huge size and population, including those who go overseas, you know, the millions of Chinese who live overseas, that there is something in China that also is menacing as the view of Americans. So it is, it's, it's both at the same time. It's people, some Americans hold the same team. So what's happened in recent years with the, with the rapid rise of China, that China is no longer poor and unimportant or marginal in world politics, but now clearly has become a central player. So the, the sense that China can be ignored or patronized has flipped now to see that China is a force to be reckoned with and now is fearsome. Now, what unites those two views is that uh, the Chinese really can't be controlled and that they are a little bit out of control. Uh, and Americans don't like to have things out of their control. <laughs> so uh, when poor and despised China, liberal Americans like to go over there and from the missionaries to, to, to other people more recently, think they could go over and remake China in America's image and to, to uplift China, to make a Chinese more like us, to make it more civilized and so forth. But then when the Chinese don't follow suit and don't become what Americans 
out of the benevolence you know, tried to make them, then they become bitter. They become angry. They say that the Chinese are, uh, uh, Americans become resentful. The Chinese aren't more appreciative of the uplift of America. So I think that's something else that's going on. And, and, and thus, always, even, even in the sense of that China is marginal and inferior, there's a sense of the power of China mm. going all the way centuries. And that's because of the landmass, uh, its place in East Asia that has always appealed or attracted Americans. Americans have always been very interested in the Far East. And China is sitting right there. And the population is huge. And those things, if you go back and look at how Americans have thought and written about China, those things loom very large in Americans, whether they despise China or fear China. Gordon, taking it now up to the, the, the present moment that we're in, there are so many horrible things that have been said by members of this administration, uh, by politicians of the president's party mainly, uh, that it's really hard for me to select just a few that really characterize what's happening. But probably for me, I think, and for many who are, are concerned about recent developments, it was the remarks made by FBI Director Christopher Wray. Uh, maybe I should say embattled FBI Director Christopher Wray because you know he's sort of on the outs with with Trump right now uh, over his failure to get get behind him on the FBI investigation in Russia. Uh, but anyway, I, I think in in I think it was February of 2018 in a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing, he said one of the things we're trying to do is view uh, the China threat as not just a whole of government threat, but a whole of society threat on their end. And I think it's going to take a whole of society response by us. Is there a more charitable way to interpret what he said then, or is this pretty much what it appears to be? I think it appears, uh, for certainly for him and for many Americans, is that, that this is a civilizational threat. Mm. It's a social threat. It's not a political threat. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, uh, you know, China's ruled by the Communist Party, and, and that's anathema to American values, and therefore we have to worry about that. It's another thing to say it's a, it's, a, it's a whole of society threat versus America, which should be a whole of society response. And this is, this is a battle, this is a war of clash of civilizations, as it said. And this yeah, is, this is really, people this is in really the administration ugly. have been more upfront about that, that, I mean, even invoking that clash of civilizations. Yeah, well, this nonsense. is very, very ugly stuff when you yeah. say that, uh, you know, usually in international politics, you talk about political conflict. You don't talk about social conflict. You don't talk about civilizational conflict because that harkens back to uh, the pre-World War I days, pre-World War II days, when people saw war as a, as a, as, as a consequence of conflict of, of peoples, not of political systems or ideologies. And that can be really ugly. It prepares people for uh, terrible conflict. Yeah, for genuine demonization. It just that, that's brings, right. Uh, yeah. yeah, demonization. Um, so that I think that's what 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 scares me now. What Faye said, uh, the FBI said, is mirrored very similar to what some people have forgotten about. This is what J. Edgar Hoover said in the 1950s uh, about Chinese in America. That that all of the Chinese Americans in uh, here were potential. Uh, dangers because of their family connections to China, to communist China. And even talked about special uh, surveillance and uh, there was the specter then in the 1950s, as even some have raised today, of uh, special detention camps for uh, uh, popu ethnic populations. Do you hesitate at all to call what's happening now ethnic profiling? Oh no, not at all. I think mm -hmm. that this is that, that what he said. If the FBI head, which is which is which is scary, it's not just some person on the street, which right. you, you could say, you know, this is not uncommon. 
But to have the official sanction of this view uh, coming from Washington across the country affects a lot of people, and they'll believe it because it resonates with a lot of deep-seated uh, prejudices in, 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 among Americans. They're readily activated. I mean, this is a country where turbaned Sikhs, mistaken for, for Arabs somehow or for Muslims, as though that were an excuse, were gunned down pitilessly in the streets after San Bernardino and after September 11th. Yeah. Uh, this is not, not a, a place that sort of handles that kind of demonization. Well, let me give you an example. You know, this is a small sound right here, right here at Stanford. In the past, uh, after his comments, uh, there were several uh, terrible uh, racial incidents right on campus where Asian American women uh, were walking or biking near campus and were... Uh, verbally and physically assaulted and, and and names called against them racial epithets called uh, against them get out of town get away go back to your where all this kind of crap right and that that mirrored i mean here it is in liberal palo alto and stanford campus but that sentiment we can see right here too this didn't start though in the trump administration um it, it really i mean you can go back to one of the more high profile cases was uh, the nuclear scientist Wu ho lee uh, whose actual background was from Taiwan, not even from mainland China, right. but uh, how he was targeted. Uh, maybe we could quickly refresh the listeners' memories about what uh, some of the more high-profile cases have been in the last couple of decades. So Wen Ho Lee is probably the, the most well-known of them. What are some of the others that you come to mind for you? Well, Wen Ho Lee was an engineer, worked at Los Alamos uh, Nuclear Lab and had high-level clearance, and he came under suspicion for espionage and underwent terrible ordeal as he was mistreated by authorities and placed in solitary and confinement and his whole reputation uh, slandered and uh, eventually all the uh, he was cleared of all uh, charges but uh, there was this, this this sense that he was somehow suspicious because of his ethnicity and in fact I, I think the evidence shows that he and his wife were actually in direct communication reporting to the FBI and or the CIA because there were Chinese scientists who were visiting, visiting Los Alamos and they were reporting on the visitors' activities. Mm. But despite that and his integrity, and he, didn't, he, he, he was completely ethical in everything he did, he came under uh, suspicion. And more recently, there have been other scientists, Shirley Chen, uh, the, the physicist at... Uh, uh, Temple, head of the Temple Physics Department, Professor Xi, yeah. a medical f- of, of, uh, researchers in down in Texas and elsewhere. The MD Anderson Cancer Center. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and they were all uh, dismissed or investigated, uh, charged. All these charges later on dropped, or but they were, they lost their jobs. And no apologies given to them, no restitution given to them. And I saw Professor Xi speak a few months ago. You know, it was terrible on his family. It was just tragic. And um, just tr- he tried to remain strong through this ordeal. Now, what's what's uh, interest noteworthy is that, and how things, how quickly things have changed, is that just a few years ago, many Chinese Americans uh, and other Americans were urged uh, and celebrated for uh, making contact with Chinese research institutions and uh, universities. Uh, the idea was that collaboration was a good thing between the United States and China, both for international knowledge, uh, but between, but for promoting goodwill between the two countries. And so a lot of Chinese Americans, out of this Washington-inspired effort, 
uh, did make exactly many of those ties. And then the, everything turned around and bit them from behind. And right. now for things that they were urged to do, now find that they are under suspicion for doing exactly what uh, people were hopeful that they would be able to do. Oh, that's that's a very interesting perspective. I hadn't really thought about that before. I, and they were actually being encouraged. I mean, and, and that does make a lot of sense. I think in previous administrations, you know, the whole idea of engagement really is to is to do just these sorts of things, is to tie China in in, uh, in so many ways that, you know, serve as kind of ballast for the relationship. And this is what scientific co- collaboration was really intended Wait, you, to do. Well, you can say this is a good thing in different ways. One, you can say it's scientific collaboration uh, uh, flourishes when there's open exchange, that people really do uh, share knowledge, that, that everybody gains from it. So that's sort of like an ideal uh, intellectual enterprise. But there's also an argument, which I think prevailed and persuaded many people in Washington, was that this is exactly what the United States should do, is to tie the United States closer into the, with the United States, uh, tie China closer to the United States, institutionally, uh, personally, and that these type of ties would would uh, accrue benefit for the United States because it would make more Chinese more Americanized. They would be closer to American institutions. That Americans could have more access into China and more influence in China. This was including also business people, trade, and you know, students all along the line. If that this was part of, if you will, an effort uh, by the United States to help inter- internally develop and transform China. Now, I'm not saying that was the whole sole, sole intent, but that was certainly one of the things which sold that effort for a lot of people. Right. Earlier this, this year, the Hoover Institution uh, worked with this task force that Orville Schell and Susan Shirk have put together, working on sort of a, a new approach to U.S.-China relations, uh, specifically on this issue of Chinese influence operations. Uh, that report uh, generated a lot of criticism, including from you, uh, in, and including from one of its major participants, from Susan Shirk, who wrote uh, a dissent to it. You were on a panel recently where you were able to talk directly you and Mike Lampton on one, one side, really, you're uh, basically arguing uh, with one of the, the, the principals of this, which is Larry Diamond of the Hoover Institution. So tell me about that, that uh, and what you found uh, was particularly problematic about this report. I, the report was really troubling. The report was entitled Chinese Influences in American Interests. And the authors of the report said they were writing this to alert Americans to the danger of America, of Chinese influences within the country. Right. Uh, a substantial part of the report focused on Chinese Americans and said that Chinese Americans were potential dangers or threats to the United States because of their ancestral ties to China, because they were unwitting agents of China or witting deliberate agents of China and Chinese institutions to spread what they would say Chinese influence in the United States. It was a really broad brush. Right. Uh, so they would say, here's an example of Chinese influence of the United States. They, they would point to a newspaper ad in an Iowa newspaper talking about <laughs> how much uh, soybeans were, were, Iowan soybeans were being sold to China. So they'll see this is an example of a Chinese influence in the United States. Well, it's not illegal. This was an advertisement taken out, um, and it was clear uh, that. Other instances of this where they would say, look, there, 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 there are... Uh, 300,000 Chinese students in the United States, 
And there is uh, evidence in the United States or around the world of uh, some some of these students working for uh, Chinese organizations or connected to Chinese organizations. So it's a kind of a guilt by association, right. where anything that seemed to be Chinese uh, was a suspect if they were um, active in in the United States. And this was really angering, it was really infuriating because it had sort of an academic imprint on it. Uh, let me give you an example of uh, one of the worst examples of this uh, consequences of rise, uh, possibly sinophobia. There was a colleague here at Stanford, his name was uh, physicist Zhang, who was a brilliant physicist who was born in China, went to Fudan University and came to the United States and got his PhD in the United States, came to Stanford eventually, was uh, in line, people said, for a, a Nobel Prize in physics. He was just a leader, world-class leader. He was also encouraged, celebrated, and pursued connections with China, as I said before. He had he was celebrated in China. He went back and forth uh, because he had a position in China, Chinese institutions. Uh, and that was all to the good, people thought. He and his wife also started up a venture capitalist company in which they raised uh, a lot of money to help fund startups that were involved in U.S.-China business. A few days after the Hoover Institution report came out, Professor Zhang committed suicide. And uh, there was no evidence that there was a direct connection between the report and this rise of cytophobia and him. Uh, he, had, he, had, he had suffered a severe depression himself. But the circumstances led all sorts of speculation about if there were, whether there was a connection. And, and I don't want to spread any speculation. But uh, in the Stanford student newspaper and some others were swirling around, there were, there were people, scurrilous accusations that he had been a spy uh, and uh, fed and drew the, on the The jig was up now. Yeah, and that's why he sort of jumped, jumped to his death. So, so there's no evidence that that was the case, and it's a tragedy for the family. But this, this sort of incident uh, and others around the country where people persecuted, we talked about some of the others, that there's this ominous cloud that, that people feel uh, now uh, kind of fixed over the heads of particularly Chinese scientists and engineers. Now, quite a number of university presidents, chancellors, deans, provosts, what have you, have written op-eds or open letters addressing this issue. And I think we've, we've got quite a collection of them on SubChina in that signal that I talked about earlier. Lee Bollinger of Columbia's op, um, Columbia University, he, he wrote one that I thought was particularly forceful, uh, where he said, no, I will not spy on my students, um, which I thought was a, a good, bold stance. Can you talk about the thrust of their positions when it comes to this issue? I mean, my sense is that there were a few pretty you know, common themes that were going on there. Uh, maybe you could talk about those. Yes, yeah, well, you're the chancellor of UC Berkeley issued statements. Uh, the provost and president of Stanford also issued statements. And, and I think the, the, the thrust of these was that to defend academic freedom and international exchange. And their point of view is that U.S. all institutions flourish. It is an open environment and exchange. And there is a tremendous talent uh, in China and in the United States, certainly. But the United States has benefited enormously from the contact, uh, the flow, intellectual flow of Chinese coming to the United States. And many of them coming here for gra as graduate students, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands have come here as, as, as researchers or graduate students. Many have stayed uh, throughout Silicon Valley, throughout every major institution 
of higher education in the United States. You have PRC-born scientists, and they have uh, become a substantial section of uh, American uh, research institutions, anywhere Absolutely. from 25 yeah. to 50% of departments and research units are PRC-born. Um, the publications of, of PRC-born people just dominate the, the scientific uh, journals. So what they uh, uh, fear is that you put a damper, you, 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 you raise fears among this population that's been so helpful that you're not going to have them staying in the United States. You're not going to have them come to the United States. You're going to have them return to China. All things which you don't want to have happened. Because the ESO, there may be some bad eggs among them who are doing bad things. But if you look at it overall, is resulted in... Uh, and tremendous benefit for the United if you want to look at it from that point of view, not just the human rights issue of the of the rights of the Chinese, right? But for these institutions, they value the students who are coming over and the scientists who are here and the tremendous value uh, that they've helped produce for the United States. That's right. That's right. So it's the two things. It's both the ethical considerations of the the you know the well, frankly, the the immorality of the targeting. And also the very real consequences to the effectiveness of these institutions as research institutions. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, Stephen Chu, who was at this panel discussion mm -hmm. on the Hoover Institution Report, former Secretary of Energy and Nobel Prize winner, a colleague here at Stanford, Chinese American, he said, "Look, you know, let's say you have three hundred thousand Chinese students in the United States. What happens? Let's say you have." 100, 200 who are some secret PLA spies. Well, you still have 300,000 students in the United States and a couple of hundred. So you've got, you've got to accept the bad A, you know, even assuming that. He said, it's worth the difference. Right. It's worth, it's worth the, the downside. He used to said he's, he, he values the intellectual uh, power of, uh, of, of these students and he wishes more could come over and to work as postdocs, as scientists in the United States, to work in his labs. But he said, with the rise of Sinophobia, it's very difficult for them to get uh, two-year visas, if not impossible. And the uh, ability of these Chinese to come over as postdocs, to work in the United States, is, has uh, really diminished. Uh, and, and that's uh, bad, he said, for the United States. The cure being proposed is much worse than the actual yeah, disease, such as it is. Yeah. It's exaggeration. It's overreaction. Um, and, and using it from the sinophobia to cause, to sort of blanket uh, attacks on, on them. Dr. David Ho, who was a leading AIDS researcher, who's really one of the people who was responsible for helping turn AIDS from a death sentence into something that's quite a, a manageable disease, uh, he spoke at a conference that we convened in New York City not very long ago, just in, in, uh, in November, uh, on this very topic. One of the things that I thought was great about it, I mean, he was very clear-eyed about it. He, he talked about the realities of, of, of some some of the problems that we do have. And he, he gave advice that was also, you know, he had sort of co-developed it and took sort of best practices from around uh, people who he's spoken with. Um, advice that was directed not only at Chinese researchers and scientists, uh, but also at U.S. government officials and at American law enforcement, at the FBI. I'm wondering what you might say if, if asked to to speak to let's let's limit it to the Chinese scientists right now, because some of their practices have been sloppy. Some of the time they, they are not dotting all the, the I's and crossing the T's. They're not disclosing affiliations. Some of them are double dipping. You know, they are, are receiving full salaries or full time employees of both an American institution and a Chinese counterpart. Right? Uh, this isn't acceptable. Right. But it, it's not right. criminal, probably, but... 
No, in some cases, maybe, yeah. I mean, people do yeah. bad things. They do wrong things. They should not. Certainly, espionage, spying, theft are all wrong, illegal. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and they should not. No one should. But to say, even if you have examples of this of this practice, it does not make a, for a racial conspiracy against right. America. Right. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fair. Um, but, you know, should American research institutions, for example, exclude uh, from sensitive work, at least, Anyone who has ever been or is currently a part of China's now infamous Thousand Talents program, for example. I mean, is that grounds to keep them out of, of sensitive work? Well, I would think not. If, if, it's, if it can't be proved, that it, I think people have to be judged on their individual merits and mm-hmm, demerits. Mm-hmm. And if they had not proved that they're somehow suspect and in danger that they're going to steal stuff they shouldn't be stealing, then uh, that's stupid. Because these people yeah. are smart and they can be great researchers. They will make contributions to medical science. You know, it's interesting. I noticed in the newspaper these reports that are coming out regularly from China. They, China makes in tremendous strides in tackling various strains of cancer. Mm-hmm. And the, the people now say China is in the lead of curing cancer in, in globally. Now, shouldn't we, the two countries, be partnering in this? And, and wouldn't we all benefit from this? Do we have to be afraid? Uh, of what they're doing, rather and and, and uh, rather than trying to partner, and everybody benefits from it. Which makes the the MD Anderson case especially bizarre to me. I mean, of all things, why would we be competitive on on things like that? I mean, yeah, presumably if there is some therapeutic, some drug that comes out of it, maybe you are giving up profits. But Christ, I mean, we're talking about saving lives, and to one of the. Yeah, and the you have to, you have you you have a slowdown and 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 a progress, but you also can have the reverse effect. I give you the example which we haven't mentioned today. In the 1950s, there was the case of uh, Dr. Chen Shui-sun, who was a uh, also from Shanghai and came to the United States, brilliant uh, astro engineer, student of von Karman, finally uh, Theodore von Karman. He was like one of the top one or two uh, engineers of the world, and went uh, down to Caltech, or youngest. Tenure professor in Caltech history became head of Guggenheim Lab, and because uh, he came under under uh, the suspicion of the FBI, and basically hounded him to the extent to which uh, he eventually left the United States. He yeah. wanted to stay in the United States. He was all his his children were born in the United States. He had a home in Pasadena, uh, and he had been in the U.S. Army, uh, and and was going to make contributions to U.S. science. But uh, p- political pressures, uh, suspicion fell on him, and, and uh, he said, to heck with this. And he went back to China, and, and a, a fairly still a young man, and he wound up being one of the leading scientists in China, and as I said, head of its rocket po- program. Right. Now, what if, if you think, think what if, what, 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 how things have been different? Well, if it hadn't gone through this uh, unfounded suspicion against him, because nothing was ever, he was never really convicted of anything, but just... Uh, abused and humiliated, uh, and he was a very proud man. And if he had stayed in the United States, you know, things could have been very different. Yeah, I think the worst that he had done is he actually, at some point, uh, notionally been a member of a, a communist party in the United States, but for a very brief period. And I think the allegation was that he had failed to disclose this on, on some. Well, I don't know if he was ever said he was part of a member of an organization. He may have gone to a, a study group or attended right. certain discussions in Caltech, which were full of different yeah, sure. liberals and communists and leftists and, and all, all over the place, including Robert Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer's brother, and all, all this that kind of crowd. Mm-hmm. 
Another major issue we flicked at it earlier. I mean, it's come up time and time again uh, in recent years. Is that about of, of Chinese students on American campuses and in, in American classrooms behaving in ways that maybe don't conform with certain American values? I mean, on the one extreme, you have um, the allegations that, and I think these are you know, in some cases quite well well grounded, that the Chinese students and scholars associations are being used as conduits by embassies or by consular officers in the United States as sort of spies on the behavior of other Chinese students. Um, that, of course, would be you know fully unacceptable. But and we're also talking about students who are you know, like th- doing things like maybe tearing down posters uh, of you know pro-Tibet or um, Xinjiang or Hong Kong-related things or antagonizing fellow students for taking particular political stances on these sensitive issues, maybe protesting the invitation of certain speakers. You know, UC San Diego and the Dalai Lama comes to mind. Uh, or, you know, their critics would say being disruptive um, in classrooms for perceived slights against China. There's this whole range of, of mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. Uh, from stuff that is clearly unacceptable to stuff that maybe, you know, could be defensible under you know, sort of free speech. Uh, but some of this stuff, I mean, I, I guess I'm, what I'm wondering is I'm sure that, that this is a, a topic of frequent discussion among university administrators, and, and you are one. Um, what is the right approach to this? What what should the universities be doing and who are the right policy actors to implement the sorts of, of approaches that, that you're, you're putting forward now? Uh, I have to say that we haven't had much of that problem here at Stanford. Yeah. I, I know it has happened. And then that's, again, individual uh, cases. But it, you're, you're right, and it has happened in, in some ugly form in other places. And that's unfortunate, and, and that uh, I would hope I would hope that people would learn that that's uh, from the Chinese point of view. I would hope that they would learn that just simply counterproductive. You st- you act that way, you, people are going to be sympathetic to those that you're trying to oppose. But so, shouldn't there be some prophylactic? Shouldn't we, those big state universities like uh, Urbana-Champaign, that has you know a huge population of Chinese students, and where right. issues like this have come up, should they be, for example? And not just singling out Chinese, but just any new international students, giving them kind of a basic civics lesson and telling them what are you know, what's within bounds and what's out of bounds. University administrations prefer to stay out of that. I hmm. mean, they prefer to encourage and support and defend an open environment and freedom of exchange, including sometimes pretty ugly opinions. So uh, we, we were talking about Chinese doing uh, th- things against uh, uh, people or organizations that they perceive as being hostile to China. Well, there's also a, a protests in other areas of left and right wing students against each other, against uh, uh, white supremacists who sometimes speak on campuses. Mm-hmm. So it's, all, it's connected to the issue of freedom of speech and assembly and protest. And my view would be is that universities should take a uniform policy about all these, and not to be politically inclined one way or the other, but to defend uh, uh, speech. But when it goes beyond that, when people's rights are violated, or there's certainly physical violence around, then that's wrong, and that should, that should not be allowed. But uh, to try to say there should be tutoring or some type of instruction I think gets the university too directly involved with when it should be be up, make it clear of what its principles are of, of free speech on campus. Okay. 
Great. You know, I want to be respectful of your time here. And uh, I, I know that you, you've got a hard stop here. So I'll, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to talk about this uh, really super important issue and um, for your, letting us hear your insights. Uh, but let's move on to the recommendations segment of the program first. Let me quickly remind listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you like what we're doing with Seneca and with the other shows in the network, the very best thing you can do to support our work is to subscribe to SubChina's daily newsletter. This thing is full of really, really great reads every day, every weekday anyway, delivered right to your inbox. Our team works very hard to make this thing, I think, the best newsletter out there. It's great value for money. Sign up and spread the word. Okay, recommendations. Um, Gordon, what what do you have for us? Do you have a book or uh, anything? I, I do, but let me, before I say that, just one last bit of evidence to suggest how, that the seriousness of this suggests the seriousness of the situation. I've been talking to colleagues here. We're in the middle of a graduate admissions cycle here at Stanford. And I've been told that the graduate admissions from China that would have sustained so much of Stanford's graduate schools, particularly in engineering and sciences, is down by something like 20%. Oh, Lord. So these two, so now what are these students? It's not just Stanford. They're not coming to the United States. These are applications. Applications. So they're going maybe to Canada, Australia. I mean, they're not all wholly welcoming themselves, but uh, in often cases. But the civilization or society-wide suspicion of Chinese is so rampant now in the United States. There are a lot of Chinese who are f- just reconsidering coming to the United States. There's so many tra- attractions to come. Who would not want to come to Stanford University? But given the atmosphere, given the climate of suspicion and the souring uh, in the job market uh, or the suspicion of Chinese in the job market is, is enough to uh, turn some of these uh, bright young people elsewhere. Yeah, that, that is tragic. So you asked about a, a book. Well, let me, let me. I think he's a friend of yours or is an associate. Matt Sheehan. Yeah, Matt's yeah, great. A buddy. Yeah, and also he is called The Trans-Pacific Experiment, How China and California Collaborate and Compete for Our Future. And uh, Matt is a lived in China. He speaks uh, pretty good Chinese. <laughs> Very good Chinese. And yeah. uh, he's, uh, uh, in addition why I can recommend it. He is the son of my next door neighbor. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw Matt grow up a bit uh, in his later years when he was here at Stanford. And then uh, uh, I get a a chance to chat with him. And he's a very decent guy and very thoughtful. He's more than decent. I mean, he's just a splendid human being. Um, I think he's one of um, he. I I adore Matt. And uh, he's, yeah, just love the work that he's done. That book is terrific. He was also the main writer on Kai Fu Lee's book, um, AI Super. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So he's, he's very well really known and he's prolific great. guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yep. Big shout out to Matt Sheehan. I, uh, you know, we he landed on our radar way back in the day when he was writing a blog called An Optimist's Guide to China. Uh, he was one of the the few sort of you know kind of, kind of unapologetically. Uh, panda huggy in, in the old times. <laughs> so, yeah, great guy, but he's always been very clear-eyed and and and, and very smart. Yeah. Great recommendation. My recommendation is for another sort of China scholar person, um, a reporter by the name of Mara Fistendahl, who's done just great work uh, over the years. Many books, uh, one on the one-child policy uh, called Unnatural Selection. But the one I want to recommend is forthcoming. I'm actually going to be uh, interviewing her at the Asia Society on stage uh, for this podcast. We're going to be taping a show live to talk about her new book, which is called The Scientist and the Spy, which is right up. I mean, it's exactly what we are talking about today here on this program. Uh, and it is 
just an empathetic but unblinking, unstinting, and beautifully written story. Uh, a little real look into not only what China has done, but what it hasn't, and what and the overreach by the FBI uh, and other law enforcement officials. And, and uh, it looks very squarely at the issue of uh, racial profiling, ethnic profiling. So it's a it's a terrific book. It's out in February. The Scientist and the Spy uh, definitely pre-order it. Uh, because Mara deserves some really good sales for this Great. book. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much again, Gordon. It was really splendid to talk to you. It was my pleasure. I look forward to hearing the, the podcast when it's completed. <laughs> yeah. We'll have it out soon. Thanks, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And be sure to check out our other podcasts in the growing Seneca network. Watch this space for new announcements about new shows in the network coming soon. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.